Well, I was on a Zoom the other day, and uh, the person, like, you know, I can't remember who I was talking to, but I uh, said the first half of the Hail Mary, and, you know, I assumed the other person would say the second half of the Hail Mary, like the rosary, or so we wouldn't be talking over each other. But then the person started saying the um, words alongside me with, like, right from the beginning, and it really threw me off. Oh, that's awkward. Well, you know. It's just bad manners. Well, hey everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner, that curmudgeon of curmudgeons, that... (laughs) Ed has something to say, Condon. I... I I have nothing to say. I, I don't ever want to talk about anything ever again. <laughs> and I am uh, teasing you a little bit because we had, uh, you and I, uh, make this podcast each week, the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. And uh, last week, we made an episode in which we talked about um, parishes and some experience that I had in a parish. And, <laughs> and we have gotten a lot of feedback. That's one way of putting it. I have gotten a lot of feedback. And... The feedback has been mixed. I mean, there are people um, of all of all classes, of the clerical class, of the religious class, of the lay class, who have uh, any, and of the lay uh, ecclesial minister class who have written to say, um, I agreed with many of the things you said. Thanks for talking about them. And some who have written or texted to say, uh, dear God, what was it you were doing? And, uh, and so we have gotten, uh, again, a lot of feedback in a lot of, uh, from a lot of different vantage points, wouldn't you say? Uh, no. I mean, maybe you have. I, I, I have not experienced a diversity of, of feedback or vantage point. It's been fairly universal, uh, mostly characterized as um, that they expected better of you. Uh, Re- really? Yeah. Um, no one ever expects better of me <laughs> for whatever reason, but uh, they expected better of you, JD. They felt specifically let down by you. Well, uh, and your I, treatment of the subject, uh, which I guess you should take as a vote of confidence, because again, no, the general... I heard a fair amount of that as well too. I mean, from people who I don't know, and from people who know me well. In fact, I heard from I, I heard from people who who, in one way or another, expected better of me. And I've been thinking about that, and I have been thinking about that, and I have been thinking about the conversation that we had last week, because um, although um, although I. Although I think that there were elements of it that we probably could have described better in the narrative, and although I think there were moments of the of, of our interlocution that probably could have been more concretely articulated, I nevertheless think the um, the subject uh, which we discussed is an important one, um, and one which I, uh, speaking for myself, am, am glad we discussed. Now, one person said to me, you know, it feels like we're just always talking about what the parish can do to be on mission, and maybe that's not even the right question, and maybe that's not fair to parish staff to always be talking about that. It's not a conversation that I have very often at all, to be perfectly honest. So for those who feel like it's a conversation that's had too much, it's not a conversation that uh, that, that I have very often. But I do want to say, I mean, I um, w- one of the things that is true is that I heard from a lot of people who work for parishes or dioceses, and... Um, and, and some of them felt like I wasn't sort of being fair to the difficulty of that um, position, uh, the difficulty of being a layperson who works for parishes or dioceses. And I want to say I was especially, I was, if I may, surprised by that because um, that class, the sort of lay ecclesial minister class, if you will, is the class um, from which I come and the class with which, to be perfectly honest, I think I most identify. And so in any way that I sort of under seem to undermine um 
the idea that working for a parish or working for a diocese is hard, uh, I'm surprised. That w- was not my intention. On the contrary, it is precisely because there are all kinds of um, uh, all kinds of spiritual, um, psychological, social, uh, and practical difficulties of working as a layperson in the life of the church. It's precisely because of that that I think having conversations about how to ensure that that um, roles in the life of the church are measured according to mission, are defined according to mission, measured according to mission, assessed according to mission, and trained according to mission is all the more all the more important because um, not having a clear sense of mission or not having kind of unity about mission is one of the things I think that can contribute to um, uh, the kinds of things that make working for church, as it were, difficult. And especially if that um, if that there's a sense that not having those things comes from uh, you know, sort of leadership, as it were. I, I can see how you'd feel that. <laughs> the other thing, the other thing that I sort of wanted to say about all of the things that we talked about last week is that I've just been thinking a lot about kind of this idea of whether or not, um, sort of lay ecclesial ministry, if you will, which by the way exists in the code, of course, and um, you know exists in the in the documents of the Second Vatican Council and those kinds of things, whether or not those things at the parish and diocesan level, you know, can serve. Um, the kingdom, because I think one of the points that you uh, tried to make, and I'm not sure that it landed, is that um, um, done poorly, uh, that kind of thing leads invariably to a kind of um, uh, a, a kind of a- abdication of Christian responsibility on the part of most parishioners. And um, I think done poorly, that's true. Where I think we might disagree is it seems to me obvious, just based upon the documents of the church, that. Um, that's not necessarily the case, that there is a way, and I've seen it, um, but I also read it in the in the magisterium of the Church and the Law of the Church, there is a way in which those things can serve um, the mission of the Church and the, and, um, the care of souls and salvation of souls. Uh, but um, but I, do, I do think, you know, that absent, again, sort of um, a sense of why we're doing the things that we're doing, um, the Church can get lost in all kinds of ways. I think that's also true. What else would you like to say? You have not wanted to revisit this uh, thing. I didn't want to talk about it in the first place. Which I think you perceive to be a minefield. Uh, That is true. And for this reason, I was not keen for us to talk about it in the first place. And also for this reason, we ended up having to record the show more than once (laughs) last week, you will recall, because I said, this is a bad idea and things are not coming across clearly and people will be offended. And I don't want that. I didn't think that was true, but I was wrong. Yeah. And yet, here we are coming back for another well, helping. What we're not doing is saying, like, we're sorry. Uh, what I'm not doing, at least, is saying we're sorry for the episode. But I do want to clarify those things which seem to be um, dismissive of very real sort of concerns or something like that. Well, I I don't recall which take of last week's episode it was that eventually ended up airing because it was a long conversation. I think we ended up talking for somewhere close to three hours in the end about this. I think we did because we talked about it. I I was in my car and we talked about it on the telephone and then we talked about it on show one, which we, which is, uh, which made it to the scrap heap. And then we talked about it in show two and there were some elements of show two that were not as good as show one, but what can you do? Exactly. Um, but anyway, I, um, yeah, I, I had hoped, I still hope that I, made it reasonably clear because it is certainly what I think that um, much of what is done in parish ministry in parts of this country is not just good, but it is essential because no one else is doing it. And let's be clear. I'm not making you say that, correct? No, you're not making me say that. 
Um, you're saying this, you're coming to this show freely and of your own will. <laughs> yes, I am not blinking rapidly into the camera or anything like that. <laughs> um, and I, in fact, in this, I do think this was in the first take and didn't make it into the second take, was I went on a lengthy kick about, for example, youth ministry in parishes and why that is, I, in my mind, a specialist ministry and subject and something that, you know, is a necessary oh, yeah, supplement. You're, you're pro-youth ministry. I'm very pro-youth ministry because, again, I think it's, Again, because I think that there can be a gigantic cultural gap or blind space in the sort of general parish community of, well, what are, where is the place of young people in, in this? And by young people, I don't mean like teenagers, but I mean anyone from sort of age 16 to 25, really. Um, and I think the the sort of general conception of the parish community can feel a bit alien for that demographic. And for that reason, I think youth ministry is something that needs to be done and it needs to be done well, and it needs to be done on a full-time basis and all that. So that was something I had said, and I I do feel, and it certainly isn't my opinion or contention that um, any full-time ministry done in the parish is bad, but I do have a great deal of, um, I don't have any familiarity at an emotional or practical level with the American parish or suburban parish model, I should say, at least as I conceive it. Um, And I do have a lot of questions about the extent to which it is something that is sustainable or ever was sustainable. And I do think that the reason that you see a particular kind of model present in a particular kind of parish really only in the United States is because it's a product of a very unique confluence of um, demographic, economic, and ecclesiastical circumstances that all that all came together in the church in this country in a particular set of decades. Um, and I don't know that that's sustainable. I, I just don't. And that isn't to say it's bad. But do um, you think, don't you think that that, I mean, that is not the... the that that's true. It's true that American sort of parishes have some unique particularities in in the model of both their administration and even the model of their sort of organization, structure, and governance. Um, it, it is true. Um, oh no, go ahead. Say what you want to say. I I, I withdraw my question. Good. You've, all you've done is successfully derailed my train of thought. <laughs> you don't want to say that that's bad. I no. I well, and I haven't said that it's bad. I don't think it's bad. I don't. I don't know that it's sustainable. And I. I I don't see the um, the trend of the church in many dioceses, which is decreasing numbers of active clergy, mergers of parishes, communities on paper getting bigger and bigger. Something you said last week is that well, surely in that situation you're going to need more and more lay help, and I don't disagree with that. But I think that if you look at that situation and say, oh well, what we're going to have is either a stable or even a growing resource base with which to supplement that sort of demographic downturn. I, I don't know that I, I don't see that as being intuitive. And so I worry about a model that is predicated on professionalism. I do. I, it's not to say the people who do it, do it badly on the contrary, but it does. I, I do have concerns about the viability of that in over the next 20, 30 years. I, I do worry about that. And I do, I have observed, and this is, again, this is not to say that 
one is the product of the other, more often I would say it's, it goes in the other direction, which is that, yeah, I do think the presence of a particularly faithful and effective even um, lay professional parish ministry does give many sections of the parish the the sense that somehow they don't need to do anything, that their job is their taxpayers. And I do worry about that. I do think that's not um, good or healthy and in the end contributes to um, the, the same system being unsustainable. Because again, if you don't have um, a sense of parish ministry that is uh, universal, that the purpose of parish ministry is to cultivate faith and virtue and Catholic identity so that every single man, woman, and child in the pews goes out and from Monday to Saturday, metaphorically speaking, um, are agents of, of the evangelization in their daily lives, then then again, I think we're, we're dealing with a, an unsustainable model. And yeah, those are concerns I have. And again, I come at them not from a sense of, you know, oh, well, this, this is weird and it is bad. Um, but I do come at it from the perspective of it is, I am an outsider looking in at this. This is not something I have, um, a great deal of life experience with. It's not, um, the parish model in which I was raised. And so I don't, and maybe this is the, maybe this is certainly it's something that's different between you and I is I don't look at it and see anything that is either intuitive or taken or to be taken as set in stone that it is nothing about this that I see in my personal experience is something that has always been and so therefore something that will always will be. And so maybe I, maybe I'm not giving it enough credit for being stable just because it's something that I still view very much as a novelty in my own eyes and experience. Well, I, I appreciate what you're saying about, um, about sustainability. And I think if you, um, if you were a pastor or a parish administrator, even a 517-2 parish administrator, you guys can look that one up at home if, and looked at me with the horror. But 517-2 parish administrators are things which can exist in the life of the church. And if and being a legitimate option is a legitimate option. So if you were a, a pastor or um, a, a parish administrator or even a 517, Canon 517-2 parish administrator, you can look that up at home. Um, and, uh, and you... Um, uh, you were watching the overall sort of trends in, of American religiosity playing out in your parish, um, which is to say institutional disaffiliation, which has been some, to some degree accelerated by um, the pandemic, but which exists, you know, by any number of metrics a- anyway, um, such that we can anticipate uh, f- fewer uh, religious practitioners 20 years from now than, than there are right now. And we can see that even in the fact that uh, about half the number of babies were baptized Catholics in 2019 as were baptized in 2000. And both of those numbers pale in comparison to how many babies were baptized Catholic in 1980 or something like that. So we can sort of see that. If you were looking at that and seeing that play out in your parish in one way or another so that you had a lot of funerals and never any baptisms or weddings and you didn't like, you weren't the pastor of a retirement village or something, so that didn't make any sense. Um, and you just sort of said, well, we're going to have a lot of uh, staff to have a lot of staff. Um, that would be poorly managed decline. But to your point about unsustainability, um, I think there is a way where, uh, I think there is a, a, a thing which, to my mind, perhaps ought to be done more often and is perhaps being done in some places, but which is to say, um, we see um, these things, you know, ongoing institutional disaffiliation, which is reflected in our pews and in our number of baptisms, our number of weddings, and, our, and even in our offertory. Um, we, we see this happening 
And, um, and therefore, um, it is sort of time to go all out with a, with a, with a sort of great awakening in this particular, um, in, in this particular um, stable community of the Christian faithful. Um, and therefore, we are going to kind of like staff up in a certain way on um, people who are um, living um, the gospel, um, walking the, 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 the via gospel, and are equipped to um, to equipped to genuinely um, facilitate in others a capacity for the proclamation of the kingdom in in their Monday to Saturday life, um, quite literally, not even just metaphorically. But um, if you were a pastor who were to say, "Yeah, I see all those things, and therefore I want to sort of staff up and really like spend a period of time." trying to um, see this parish be um, renewed in faith and apostolic dynamism uh, because we, mu- we need to sort of give it one last hurrah before we sort of go quietly into that good night. I, I think that would be, in fact, a, a prudent pastoral approach. Whether that's happening, you know, the degree to which that's happening or not happening is, 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 is one thing. Um, sort of imagining that one can maintain a large sort of bureaucratic staff that is not mission-oriented, I think is not only unsustainable but counterproductive. But in many cases, I think that um, making a decision to the contrary, we're going to like give this one last, uh, give this one big uh, offensive push, which is to say, um, really sort of imbue the parish with the kind of people who can imbue each parishioner with um, the spirit of the gospel by which to animate the temporal order. Well, that might, in fact, be the best possible response. Very possibly. But again, that's not... um, That's not a mentality of parish... Uh, ministry which lends itself to or supports or begets the stereotype which we discussed last week and is a real stereotype and not for no reason of sort of unhelpful distant bureaucratic approaches sure, to you, parish you ministry. don't belong here is uh, you don't belong here is not sort of in service there's a whatsoever. difference between a youth right. minister who is busting their backside six days a week trying to make sure that children in the parish turn into Catholic adults with a lived experience of faith and not just a sort of weekly understanding of religiosity. That's one thing, but that's a million miles away from a parish music director who you have to pay 250 bucks to whether you use them at your your wedding or not, because they've got an exclusive contract. Those are two completely different understandings of what parish ministry is for. And and yet, um, with the right pastoral vision, the music minister could indeed become uh, an agent and conduit of conversion. Everyone can, but again, it's a question of intentionality and mentality and how it's being lived. Yeah. Here's the other thing that I sort of wanted to, uh, no, go ahead. You had something else you want to say. No, I didn't. We're, we're into minute 20 and we're going to talk about this for seven minutes and uh, (laughs) we go. And I am now blinking furiously and trying to telegraph to people. I am a hostage in this conversation. Well, I have other things that I wish to say. I mean, that's, that's, the, me thing about, that's the thing about being host, really. And, and, and it's yours for the taking. I mean, it is yours oh, for no, the you taking. Oh, no, you lost that bet. <laughs> I know. I'm just saying, in as much as I am host, I'm host, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, uh, the other... <laughs> uh, so the other thing I wanted to say is I think there were... Um, uh, 
again, I think that that I, I you know I think there are people who are thinking I was trying to sort of malign this particular person, which I, I genuinely wasn't, um, because I because as I say, I think this has to come from sort of decisions about mission and training. And then there were a lot of people who were saying, yeah, but what if the person is struggling in this way or that way? Sure, I want to make allowances for all of the possibilities of the person's situation, while at the same time I think all of us can recognize there's a conversation to be had about how all of us can contribute better to the proclamation of the faith and 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 and, and the mission of the gospel. And, um, and that really does include all of us. It would be a consumerist mentality to say, well, those people who are getting paid by the parish need to be missionaries. And that, I think, is, is, is a big part of your point, and it's, it's something which, with which I completely agree. Now, we have gotten, um, we have gotten some, um, some feedback from fellow canonists. I heard from at least one canonist, possibly two, who had a different objection to the entire conversation that we had. Uh, do you know what that objection was, Ed? Uh, this is about what constitutes the parish. <laughs> we kept saying that a parish is what? We kept saying a parish is a portion of the people of God, which is what the code uses to describe a particular church, a diocese. So to be clear, we understand that the code uses the phrase portion of the particular God, to, a portion of the people of God to describe a particular church. And Ed, how does the code describe a parish? Well, I mean, a parish can be constituted in several different ways, and in many respects, it's up to the local ordinary. So 515 to do five fifteen one, five fifteen, five fifteen. Okay, oh, hang on, hang on. I didn't again. I'm still a hostage in this conversation, and I didn't realize <laughs> we we're going to the law over it. And... <sighs> five fifteen. <clears throat> I am always in the law, my man. A parish is a certain community of the Christian faithful stably constituted in a particular church whose pastoral care is entrusted to a pastor, parochus, as its proper pastor, pastor, under the authority of the diocesan bishop. It is, okay, not a portion of the people of God, but a certain community. A certain community of the Christian faithful stably constituted in a particular church. And they could be a community delineated by territory, as is often the case, or it can be a personal mm -hmm. parish, or they can be in some other way demarcated on a stable basis. That is correct. So, but I we, applaud the canonical pedantry. I do too. Uh, especially, I mean, there's a way in which we could have said, well, a stable community of the Christian faithful is a portion of the people of God. You yeah, know, but it's but not about that. I appreciate the, the code that the uses different like language in both sections. I think I, that we ought to be, yeah. And I, again, I, th that's the sort of canonical nitpicking that, frankly, I applaud and we celebrate on this show. So, thank you, Father. You know who you are. You already. know who you are. And uh, I, I applaud oh, that. A, However, a great the point that you. we were using that phrase for last week, which is to underline that the parish is the people, stands. Okay. Well, we are going to be done with that conversation now out of deference to you and your discomfort with it. And uh, there's something that we've both been wanting to talk about very much, which is the situation in, in Ukraine and uh, for the people of Ukraine, which is a serious conversation. And we need to get into our serious, get, get your serious face on here, Condon. Oh, I am. Yes, I am. I, this is, we wanted to talk about this last week and I mean, well, the, well, it is the most important thing to talk about right now. It is rightly the focus of pretty much everyone's attention. And the situation in Ukraine is, I mean, apart from heartbreaking, it is that, um, but it is also extremely complicated and extremely nuanced and extremely complex. And there's a lot of moving parts and, um, what we can contribute is to talk about the religious, the, the religious dimension of what's happening. Which um, is a huge part Which is of a it. huge part of it. I don't think there's it's any way to... It's not possible to understand right. what Russia is doing and why if you don't understand the religious context. Now, you can understand um, how Russia is doing what it's doing if you don't understand the religious context. I mean, you can understand, for example, that 
Russia's ability to send um, natural gas to Europe is, um, is, uh, is, is enabling and facilitating Russia to, you know, to, to have the money to do uh, the, the invasion of Ukraine that it's doing. And um, you can understand sort of what Putin frames as the immediate causes, namely the kind of NATO stuff. But, um, but, but the real causes, not the material causes, how do they afford this or the immediate cause, but the deepest kind of causes have to do um, with worldview and also have to do with the ecclesiastical situation in Ukraine, wouldn't, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this is, again, you can, as you said, you can understand the, the how um, of what's going on in many cases if you don't understand the religious aspect. But it's very, very difficult to get your arms around the why, right. which is often the case. I mean, this is, this is a great shortfall of a lot of our, um, our, our sort of Western public discourse around world events is that we lack a spiritual dimension. We lack the spiritual nuance and whether or not the New York Times thinks that religion is a legitimate motivator of human action, it is. And it is in many cases a bedrock motivator of human action for most of the people in the world. Um, and so it is important to understand that. And the situation in the Ukraine is particularly fascinating. I mean, we, we have talked on the podcast before, I think, um, albeit in less traumatic circumstances about the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church um, and we've, you know, we've had uh, some interesting articles and conversations um, with members of that church. But of course, the the majority of people in the Ukraine are Christian. The majority of Christians in the Ukraine are Orthodox. And the history and current situation of the Orthodox churches, plural, in the Ukraine is fascinating. It really is. Um, you have the, I want to make sure I get this right, the right way around. You have the uh, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Of the Moscow yeah, the Ukrainian, yeah, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which is in communion with and ecclesiastically subject to the Patriarchate of Moscow and all Russians, which is led by Patriarch Kirill. Kirill. So falling under the so the so the um, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church is effectively um, a uh, um, a church uh, within this sort of Orthodox communion, but one which yeah again falls jurisdictionally under the communion of. Um, the Moscow churches, the Russian Orthodox churches, as as it were. Uh, not and this has been a historical thing that goes back some distance because, as, as people have been discussing in recent weeks, Russia has traditionally tried to have a, and has had a bit of sway over what goes on in Ukraine. And this goes back well, ecclesiastically. There's a long history of that. I mean, there's, yeah. there's a long sort of intertwined history of, um, uh, you know, two peoples with... Um, with two uh, uh, with with two cultures that are intertwined with each other, and one of the problems that I think we run into often is we um, want to impose the model of the nation state upon a history which precedes the notion of the nation state. Um, yes. So, so to say, well, there, you know, to say, well, there have always been sort of two countries called Russia and Ukraine does not do justice to the situation, but neither no. does do justice to the situation to say, well, these are these are one people who are sort of cut up by contemporary political borders. Neither of those things is true. No, neither of those things is true. The, the human history is much more about people than right. political constructs. Right. And when you're talking about people and the history of people and the histories of peoples, you're also talking about religion more often than not. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, one of the things that has happened in the post-Soviet era in that part of the world is you have seen the emergence of the Orthodox Church of Ukraine. The Orthodox Ukraine. Church of Ukraine. You got it right. That's right. Yeah. Thank you. Um, um, and what the Orthodox Church of Ukraine is, is essentially it is also a, 
it is an it is an orthodox church but it is headed by its own patriarch it is not a suffragan or subject ecclesiastical body to the moscow patriarch it is effectively the product of the church being rebuilt in ukraine uh, you know, since since 1989, and subject to the the following that the breakup of the the USSR and um, the the degree in which Ukrainians, in, at a time of asserting national identity, have also said, we don't see any reason historically, theologically, um, canonically, to be subject to the jurisdiction of Moscow and beginning bishops beginning to sort of fall out of communion with the Moscow Patriarchate. Parishes beginning to fall out of communion with the Moscow Patriarchate, and over time, over these three decades, um, most Ukrainian Orthodox finding themselves in a church which sees its um, which sees its head in Kiev and not in Moscow. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And in and and so what happened was in 2019, mm-hmm. the Patriarch of Constantinople, Bartholomew, along with pretty much half of the Orthodox churches that make up the global Orthodox communion recognized the independent Ukrainian Orthodox church and their own autocephalous self-headed patriarch and said, no, this is a legitimate church. We absolutely recognize it. They are in communion with us. They are, you know, we, we see here reflected our own image, which is a, a grown up self-sustaining legitimate Orthodox church. And what happened in 2019 when that happened was Kirill and the Moscow Patriarchate lost their ever-loving minds about this and broke communion with the Patriarchate of Constantinople, the supposed primus inter pares of the Orthodox communion, along with all of the other Orthodox churches that recognized <coughs> the independent Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Um, they, Several other Orthodox churches also refused to recognize the independent Ukrainian church, but these are mostly other Orthodox churches that are well within what the, the sphere of you, Moscow. Yeah, well, the the Ruski mirror basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, the that are well encompassed by the 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 Russian self self conception of their territory, their sphere of influence, right. whether it be the Serbian Orthodox Church and things like that. Um, and so that that is all past that is prologue to what we've been seeing going on now. And of course, now what's been happening is with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the inflicting of casualties on the civilian population, the bombing of urban centers, all of this stuff, you have seen, obviously, a lot of the religious leaders of Ukraine calling for peace, begging for peace, being joined by religious leaders across the world, but conspicuously absent in this full-throated denunciation of the Russian invasion is, of course, Patriarch the Russian Kirill. Orthodox Church, and, and specifically Patriarch Kirill. And so before we talk about kind of what exactly is happening with the Orthodox bishops right now and this kind of ecclesiastical shuffle that they're playing, I think it would be helpful if we back up just a little bit and talk about the the th- sort of theological or cultural concept that is um, that is driving Vladimir Putin, which Putin has expressed over the past six or seven years and which has been expressed over the past two decades or so by leaders of the Russian Orthodox Church. And it's a concept called the Ruski Mir or the Russian world. Um, and the idea Ed, is, is effectively um, that um, by divine providence, um, the Russian, Belarusian and Ukrainian people, the idea of this Russian world, or that the Russian, Ukrainian and Belarusian people are one people by divine providence in which um, God's glory will be sort of particularly manifested and whose unification has been um, uh, um, 
efforted, whose unification has has been um, uh, has been prevented or thwarted in various ways um, by uh, by effectively enemies of the Lord's providence. So there's this idea that. The it's history, a sort of spiritual manifest it's a destiny. spiritual manifest destiny is exactly what it is. This idea that ha- has always sort of been, you know, the, the history of sort of the the notion of the Russian Empire and its connection to um, Rome, its connection to Constantine, its connection to the church. is The self-conception of the Moscow church as the third Rome. The third Rome, precisely, right? This is a long-standing idea that Moscow has this particularly unique and important role in kind of the world by virtue of God's providence, where the Russian church and the Russian emperor stand in some way in, in unity with one another as servants, uh, servants of God and of the kingdom. Well, what it is, is they are the intellectual and they style themselves as the legal and historical, but they are certainly the intellectual heirs of the integralist mentality within the Western Christian tradition. The idea that um, the, the, church authority and the secular authority should be not just um, mutually reinforcing, but entwined in their exercise of authority and mutually dependent. And of course, the lesson of the church uh, in the West, of the Latin church and its contact with the Roman Empire has been very much that the the reason we call it Caesaropapism is because Kaiserism nor, nor Caesaropapism has proven to be an effectively good thing for the life of the church. Well, no, it hasn't. But the reason we call it Caesaropapism is because Caesar comes first, right? Mm-hmm. And that has always been the lesson of the church getting into bed with the secular authority: is the top hand is always going to be the state authority. But you know, De Lubac had as much problem with Papo Kaiserism, where the where the um, where the Pope had exercised temporal jurisdiction in a way which undermined even his own um, his own spiritual role and the you know the ability to exercise his, his ecclesiastical office and those kinds of things so in either case they can be uh, you know de Lubac and the fathers of the second Vatican council argued these things can be diminishing of the the, the 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 role and mission of the church in the life of the world yeah although there's a there is a marked difference between um, the the church's relationship in supporting uh, and lending support to, for example, the Roman Empire um, versus the the maintenance of the papal states yeah, as a mechanism sure. for the independence of the papacy and sure. its, its self sustainability. I think that's right. Uh, okay, are, so yeah. so the, so what so what Russia, uh, what the Russian Orthodox Church and Putin have expressed, especially um, over the past, uh, most concretely since 2014, but I think since 2000 and even before that, is this notion that is this notion that. The Russian Church and the Russian, you know, emperor, for lack of a better term, the Rus- the Russian president have this responsibility for the um, sort of the establishment or the the the, uh, um, the maintenance of a Christian a, Ru- a Russian Christian sphere. Is that right? Yes, and I mean to be clear, this the the conception of a Russian Christian sphere. Let's just be clear includes is premised on the idea of the nation that has, as far as I'm aware, the highest abortion rate in the world. I, I think so. I, 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 I've often heard that. I, I don't have the numbers it's, in front of me for the moment. I looked at the numbers earlier this week, and it is, I, I, it's mind-boggling, mm-hmm. high and considerably higher than the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not good. And then, of course, there is this, you know, you, we, we had an interview last month um, with Archbishop Boris Kuziak of the Ukrainian Eparchy of Philadelphia, who, who had a lot to say about, um, you know, what what the the Christian values, quote unquote, of uh, of the Russian state look like in practice, and that is the violent suppression of dissent, um, the coercive force of the state being 
basically turned to the whim of the ruler. And this is not a Christian vision of the purpose or exercise of authority. Yeah. So, um, so this vision, the Ruski Mir, um, is the thing which animates Putin to have a sense of um, needing to, in, as he frames it, unite the peoples of Belarus, um, uh, uh, Ukraine, and Russia. And part of that is um, being united, um, which which Patriarch Kirill has been emphatic about, being united um, under the ecclesiastical jurisdiction of the Patriarch of Moscow. So the Patriarch of Moscow would exercise... Um, uh, the church's jurisdictional authority in all of those places, which would be intertwined with the exercise of temporal authority on the part of um, the, the 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 leader of Russia, and so these things are kind of intertwined. And so there had been a great fear that um, Kirill would effectively outlaw the um, the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, or that Russia, in support of this vision, would outlaw law the Orthodox Church of Ukraine. But there's this sort of anthropological, cultural, spiritual idea of this of the russian sphere and its place in god's providence and in history which is driving a lot of what's going on here yes yeah. but uh, of course what we're actually seeing happening now is kirill has he on sunday made this he and it's the i think it's called the first patriarchal or first primatial word which is, if you like, a, a sort of authoritative pronouncement, a, a sort of you know, a, it, within the within the Orthodox tradition, particularly the Russian Orthodox tradition, it's this idea of you know, it's not quite like a, um, a papal encyclical that's spoken, but it is you know, it is an it is a it is an expression from the chair, if you like. It is uh, it's not a private opinion being expressed, mm -hmm. and what Kirill prayed for was peace, but peace of a particular kind, peace through the unity of what he called the single space of Russian and Ukrainian Christianity and for the suffering Christians of Ukraine, who are, of course, only legitimately to be recognized as under the Moscow Patriarch's um, subsidiary church in Ukraine and basically said, yeah, I want peace, but by peace, I mean the Ruskimir. Um, so what we have been seeing, though, is on the ground a sort of... Uh, reverse pull that the more Moscow has attempted to assert its authority and manifest destiny rights over Ukraine, the more it has served to unite Ukrainian sentiment against it. And this includes the Ukrainian Orthodox Church that comes under the Moscow Patriarchate, so much so that um, this week a number of bishops that have always considered themselves to be under, if you like, the jurisdiction of and in communion with the Moscow Patriarch, have removed references to Kirill from their liturgy, basically stripped him of, you know, sort of name-checking him in the course of the divine liturgy in much the way that, um, for example, we're familiar in Mass with, you know, referencing Francis our Pope and the, the local diocesan bishop by name and things like that. They've pulled Kirill's name out of it, and Kirill has, of course, um, thrown his toys out of the pram about that and declared all of these bishops to be in schism with him. Well... What's interesting is I haven't seen a decree. Kirill said, doing this would put you in schism. And um, in the Latin church, I would ask myself, okay, so in, the, in, in our church, um, doing that would, uh, would, um, would get you a latest intensity excommunication, right? So um, taking the Pope out of the thing would get you a latest intensity excommunication. In fact, there was a priest in, in old, uh, it's old Sacramento who did that a couple of years ago. And he got, he, his excommunication was declared. But your excommunication to take effect would have to be declared. I um, 
upon review of this situation, certainly seeing that think that Kirill has said doing this puts you in schism. I don't know, in part because I'm not a Russian Orthodox canonist, I suppose, but um, I don't know if Kirill has formally declared them to be in schism or not. It doesn't matter. It's an extremely arcane point. But it has. It is. I am curious if there will be a decree, if there has been a decree, or if he's just the kind of guy who doesn't care about Oh, decrees. I suspect he's the kind of guy who cares very much about decrees, and yeah, we will get one. might be punctilious about his decrees. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. So, but he has said, at any rate, that what these two bishops have ordered their priests to do is constitutive yeah, of schism. I mean, at a certain point... Now, one of the guys said, this was really interesting, one of the guys said, the, the Archbishop of, of uh, I'm going to say it wrong, but the Archbishop of Sumy in, in, in eastern Ukraine, only like, um, n- not very far from the Russian border at all, a few hundred kilometers maybe from the Russian border, uh, and, and I suspect the diocese goes all the way to the Russian border. He, he said, he said, look, I have no intention of schism here at all. I remain firmly in the bosom of the church with the patriarch of Kiev uh, as my patriarch. So what he effectively did there in a certain way is effectively fail again, like sort of double down on not recognizing, but at least implicitly, um, the the spiritual authority over um, uh, 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 over the the Ukrainian church, in, which has been in communion with Moscow, sort of over that church. It's very um, it was subtle, but it was not. I mean, if you were looking for it, it hit yeah. you like a lead blow. Well, I wonder if we're going to see a sort of more concerted push towards a united Ukrainian Orthodox community and church at the end of this. I mean, this is, uh, I mean, this is often the, this is often the perverse result of imperial action or imperialist action is, you know, you, you tighten your grip and more slips through your fingers. Um, and I wonder if this isn't going to be the case for the, for the Moscow affiliated Orthodox church in Ukraine. The Patriarch of Constantinople thinks that it will be. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, I don't know if you saw, I think you did see because you sent it to me, actually. He said on uh, uh, yesterday, or maybe on Tuesday, that um, indeed more and more um, uh, Orthodox bishops in Ukraine would be looking towards the um, the Autocephalous Church, the church in communion with most, or- most Orthodox as a result of this, and that Moscow would become increasingly sort of isolated, even among, even within sort of the, the Russian sphere, the Russian world, Mo- the Patriarch of Moscow would become increasingly yeah. isolated. And I mean, again, if yeah. that, that has deep and wide implications, not just in Ukraine and the situation in Ukraine, but also in Russia, like the, the, the reason there is this symbiotic relationship between the the Moscow patriarchy and the Russian state under Putin is because they are they are in a very mutually supportive and beneficial relationship that one bolsters the authority of the other and if the I don't want to say the credibility of Russian Orthodox Christianity but if the if the if the Russian Christian faithful begin to see that their own brothers and sisters in other Orthodox Christian churches are turning their backs effectively on the Russian Orthodox Church and saying, what you are doing is not Christian. What you are doing is nothing like Christian. You are supporting a a violent and bloody war unilaterally waged in increasingly against a civilian population. Um, that, that could end up having, I mean, you think there are protests in some parts of Russia now against the war, that this is the sort of thing that amps that up fast. Yeah. Now here's the question. Um, here's the question that I think a lot of people have would ask about all of this, about this discussion. And I think you've alluded to it right there, but it's an important thing for us to talk about, which is um, P- 
people are dying in Ukraine. Civilians are being targeted by cluster bombs. Um, the situation is quite dire. Um, isn't all of this ecclesiastical politics kind of extraneous to what's really happening? I, I think the no, answer is no, not. and not just because this is what we do for a living, but because the degree to which these things are constitutive elements of both the motivation for the war and um, the self-understanding of people who live in these places is, is not appreciated no, by I, us. No, I, I mean, to say that this is all just sort of um, background theater or whatever is that... that no, that it, that is as untrue to say as to say. Well, it doesn't really matter what the sort of Kremlinology of Putin's inner circle and how they're reacting right. to this. Uh, you know, it matters. Like, well, of course, right. it matters. Or people who would say, "Well, why are you talking about Sunni and Shia? That doesn't have anything to do with you know what's happening in Iraq." It's like, well, then obviously you don't. No, of course it does because these are things which are, which forms sort of baseline, um, a, a, not not just sort of are constitutive of of the culture of the place, but which form baseline alliances, which form baseline political worldviews, um, uh, which form sort of um, a national understanding and therefore personal understanding. And the uh, the assertion of Ukraine's independence, the, the extraordinary assertion of Ukraine's independence as a nation and as a people that we've witnessed over the past eight days um, is, is, in fact, sort of tied up with the fact that the majority of Ukrainian um, Orthodox believers um, practice in a church which has, over the past few years, strongly asserted its understanding of itself as an independent reality. That's that's that forms um, that undergirds the notion that Ukraine doesn't want to see itself as a part of Russia and doesn't see itself as a part of Russia to the point where, you know, um, men and women are defending in the street their their nation and their identity and in in extraordinary. Well, and way. again, the there's there is also a lot of discussion in the public sphere about the extent to which there are no clear-cut um, lines. And we've talked about that the, the concept of peoplehood and the, the forces at work in, in this sort of theater of the world long predate national borders, and they certainly do, and the concept of a nation-state. And, uh, you know, people have made much of the fact that, well, you know, Ukraine isn't one thing itself, that there are different um, peoples and ethnicities and histories and traditions, you know, within... And the regional differences, even on political perspectives between East and West, are not are not, not insignificant. I mean, but what's interesting about the situation and is important if you want to understand how we got here and how the situation could develop further is that even those parts of Ukrainian Christian society which have traditionally been very comfortable with um, close historical and cultural and even hierarchical links with Moscow are turning in the other direction now. That, and, you know, right. I mean, that is an that is a massively significant cultural turn in the tide that absolutely yeah. bears watching. And if you don't understand it, it will be much harder to track what is going on and, under, and make sense of whatever is coming next. And Lord knows I don't know what that will be. But if you don't understand it, um, keep asking us questions and we'll keep trying to explain it on the show and in our coverage. I've been really glad we've been – I think we've been kind of on the spot with covering these things. And especially today we had um, – we had coverage from our Ukrainian correspondent, um, Anatoly Babinski, who is a, a by trade a, a church historian at the Ukrainian Catholic University, but who is um, who has uh, put on his reporter hat and doing some reporting for us, and we'll have another another report from him in a couple of weeks. But so, if you don't understand it, stick with us. But I think um, the significance of um, the religious dimension of this, because as a motivating force for the invasion itself and for the claims which undergird the invasion about who Ukrainians are and who Russians are, cannot be under uh, cannot be um, um, overstated. Um, nor can the degree to which these these ecclesiastical politics indicate um, the the current um, perspective on the ground 
um, be uh, be underestimated, yeah. be overestimated yeah. rather. Yeah. Do you want to talk for seven minutes about what happened in a Vatican City State Courtroom today? Today. Today, or excuse me, this week. Sorry, it's been a it long, been a day, long day since Tuesday. Apparently. <laughs> It's been a long day since Tuesday. I would love to. And I assume this is a J.D. Flynn seven minutes on the podcast, which means I get a clear 25 minimum. <laughs> anytime. I'm going to say it again, and I'm going to mean it. Anytime you want to be the host, you get to keep the time. Well, that's fair. Um, on the subject of your, your previous offers to allow me to host the podcast and indeed to even force me to host the podcast and wagers we may have made... <laughs> Um, what did happen in a Vatican courtroom this week is the judges drew to a close the pretrial hearings that have been going on for the last seven months or so. They resolved all of the motions to dismiss that were made on procedural grounds by the defense teams of the various 10 defendants who are on trial in Vatican City. Um, it would not be fair to say they dismissed all of them. Um, there was there was a handful like of the six or seven that they issued formal rulings on, and the official ruling came out on the, the hearing. The final sort of pretrial hearing, if you like, was on Monday, but the ruling was officially released on Tuesday. Um, but basically, what they did was they they slapped down all of these motions to dismiss that basically challenged the way the investigation had been run by the prosecutors, the way evidence had been deposited. Um, the operative law that was being applied during the trial itself, the judges didn't just sort of, you know, dismiss all of these ideas out of hand, but in a very, very densely argued 40-page decision, basically took these defense lawyers to the woodshed and gave them, gave them what for. I mean, this was a, this was a real spanking uh, that showed, I, this is my opinion, um, that many of the lawyers who have been hired by some of the defendants don't really seem to understand what legal system they are operating in. Um, many of them mm -hmm. seem to think that they are basically in a rogue province of Italy and that they will get far by sneeringly quoting Italian constitutional law and talking down to the judges, which surprisingly has not gone over all that well. Um, but anyway, there's there have there was some fascinating repetition about that. Uh, there was some discussion of the of the famous four rescripts which Pope Francis issued that basically authorized the investigation in the first place. There was you know this there was a lot of argumentation about you know well this shows that there wasn't due process because the Pope signed these special secret measures that authors and you know the judges had to patiently explain no uh, rescripts. Ex audiencia, you know, sort of, you know, papal rescripts are law in the Vatican. And you know, mm -hmm. the Pope wasn't circumventing due process. He's creating it for a situation right. that there was no legal precedent for, which is the a bank, which is, which is his prerogative, prerogative, but also it's necessary that he is the legislator. That's what you do when you have a situation that has no legal precedent in a jurisdiction. So, for example, in this case, when a bank, the IOR, flags a complaint about pressure being put on it to approve a suspicious loan for, to the Secretary of State, which is what triggered this whole thing. And the Vatican authorities come to the Pope and say, look, here's the complaint that's been made under your new financial rules. And it looks to us a lot like there's some 
shady financial stuff going on at the Secretary of State, but we don't have the authority to go and investigate the Secretary of State mm-hmm. and, you know, conduct a police surveillance action. I think, what should we do? What the Pope says, well, well, then I give you the authority to do it. It basically creates the Office of a Special Prosecutor is effectively what he did. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the defense lawyers were not happy about this. They tried to argue that, well, this is not how it's done in Italy, to which the Vatican judges replied, you are not in Italy. We have our own laws. They are written right here. Here are the guarantees of due process, and we will enumerate them for you again. And all of these have been honored, and this is all in conformity with the various international conventions to which the Vatican has signed up. And if you don't think that they conform to the ones that we haven't signed up to, well, that's just too bad because we didn't sign up to them. Um, in, right. So there's there's been a lot of back and forth about that. There's uh, some very interesting details about... Uh, how how some procedural law in the Vatican works. There were some arguments about, for example, the a number of Vatican institutions, including the Secretary of State, the IOR, APSA, the ASIF, or as if, if you prefer, which is the Vatican's financial watchdog, are all civil parties to the prosecution. They are basically suing the defendants at the same time they are being criminally prosecuted um, for different reasons, most of them related to Basically, they're suing them for damages, in some cases, financial damages, in other cases, loss of reputation, because in the case of the IOR, they're saying, look, what these people did has cast into doubt the entire credibility of our financial operations, that we are a good bank doing good work who adhere to international standards and our entire operating model has been made a mockery of by these people. And frankly, we're on damages. And so there was some back and forth between the lawyers and the judges about whether or not it's possible to sue effectively for non-financial damages. You know, can you sue to, to for damaged reputation in in right. Vatican City? And uh, and you can. Turns out mm-hmm. um, that they said this mm-hmm. is the constant jurisprudence of this court. So there was a lot of that. Um, yeah, it's just been it's a fascinating read. But more importantly, uh, all of this has been prologue you know it has felt over the last seven months very much at times like we were never going to get on with things that we were never to yeah and in fact not long ago um three weeks ago more or less (laughs) you confidently predicted for the second time that we would never see a full day of real court section. Well, I think I said we... I, I can't remember if I said we would never see a full day or if we wouldn't see it before the end of uh, June. We, we, we narrowed it down. You originally... Your your New Year's prediction, which you made in Easter, was that the entire trial would collapse this year and it would all be dismissed mm-hmm. and it would, you know, it would die in the pretrial phrase, phase. You narrowed that prediction down three weeks ago to by June 30 this year, there would not be a single evidentiary phase trial proper hearing. But now that all of these pretrial motions have been resolved and dismissed, we're getting the first day of evidentiary phase hearings proper on March 17th. And the first witness mm-hmm. out of the gate is scheduled to be Cardinal Angelo Becciu. And I, right. and I know probably a lot of our listeners are going to really be looking forward to the podcast we record that day. And are you going? Ed, are you um, going? I don't know. Maybe. I'll try. I would counsel you to go. I would certainly support that, and I'm happy to go along, too. Uh, but it would seem that it would be great to be in Rome for this thing. Although, what will happen is we'll go to Rome, and then it'll be touched or tied up by a delay. Or Probably. Like but anyway, it, 
assuming all goes to schedule and um, March 17th is the first day of full-on trial hearings proper, uh, you undertook to make a special report, as you may recall. You... I, I don't rec- I actually don't recall what the bet was. I'm not very good at remembering my bets. I make that's a point right. I've remembered really for you. And actually, what it is is you are going to sing on the podcast um, a an update on the day's evidence and events in court, and you are going to do so by using your gift for rhyming humor by rewriting the lyrics to the Little Mermaid song "Part of Your World." To uh, to describe the ca- the trial involving. To- to describe Cardinal Betchu's evidence for the day, yes. And I'm I'm okay. really looking forward to that. I think it's going to be some some must listen to radio. Okay. But anyway, enough about look, me, JD. Look at my spy. Exactly. You see, I knew you were going to be. But good. I don't believe prosecution's complete. Wouldn't you think I'm a prince, a prince of? No, I gotta gotta work on it a little bit. But wouldn't you think I'm a prince kind of works, yeah. but I got it. No, I think you yeah. can, um, I, I, I'm confident that this is going to be probably the best podcast content we've ever put out there. I've got payouts and payoffs and... you got a couple of weeks, but this is going to be amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I've got payouts and payoffs and... Yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's it. that has been enjoyable to... Intimidation payroll. <laughs> Do you have anything that you've noticed or remarked upon? You want dossiers? I got plenty. No, no, no. We'll work on this. We'll work on this. Yeah, I didn't realize that I made that bet, but it was a good, good, good idea. Anyway, so It'll be uh, what did you make? What I think we should do, actually, though, is I'll write the song, and then maybe we can sort of like one lucky listener can sing the song on the show. What do you think about that? I'll write the song, and then we'll invite somebody with a great voice to sing it. Uh, I cannot imagine anyone would want to volunteer for that, but I'm willing to hear it. <laughs> well, if anyone does if want to anyone volunteer wants for to it, spare I mean, you know, JD. a lot of people are... No, no, it's not that. It's just that I think people would rather hear this sung by somebody with some chops. Well, that's possible. You know what I mean? Do we ha- I don't, I don't, maybe we yeah, have I mean, accomplished singers in the listenership. I I have no doubt that we have accomplished singers. We have, we have at one of the most accomplished and uh, cosmopolitan, sophisticated, faithful, and, and holy, really, listenerships of any show that uh, I'm aware of. That's almost certainly true. Anyway, yeah. what did you make of make of this week in the Vatican financial trial? Enough about what I thought. No, no, I, no. I thought I, I, it was, this was your to do. Oh, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> this matters. This is important. No, I think it does matter. I think it is important, and that's why we spend so much time on it. And I, I'm, I'm just—I would have been just as capable as laying out those things that you just laid out as you did. But I, I, this is your. Everybody knows this is, this is your baby, and uh, and I and I um, midwife that baby out into the world. Okay. I should have gone with a different metaphor. Got weird again. Metaphor. It got super weird. Yep. Mm-hmm. Jay, do you want to do a quick round of yes or no? Okay. Yeah, okay. let's see. What uh, well, it's it is the first week of Lent. Yep. So there. Yep, are, yep, yep. Boy, it seems like this Lent is just going it does, on. It's really it? dragging. Um, so this is one I, of the longest Lent. I have ever. just literally written down nine things that occurred to me while we were talking. So I this is not. So we're going to play yeah, Lenten yes or no. Lenten yeah. yes or no. Lenten yes or no. J D. Lenten. Yes or no. The way this game works is that you will say things that are associated with Lent, and I will say yes or no with no other intervening 
um, commentary or qualification simply yes or no. I'll let my yes be yes, and you know what I'll do with my no? You'll yeah. I'll let it be no. Well, that's the, that's the theory anyway, although it's never quite shaken out that way before. Lenten, yes or no. All right. Let's do um, it. Lent lasts for 40 days, J.D. Yes or no? Yes? Yes. Well, there are 40 days yeah? of Lent. Well. Where are they? Which are they? Which are the 40 days of Lent, J.D.? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I actually, this is a good question. Are there, from are Ash there... Wednesday to Easter Sunday is 46. Well, I don't think the Sundays count, So Sundays right? don't count, but do you fast on the Sunday? Do I? Do you fast on the Sunday? I think that's the sort of thing that people, you know, there are no hard rules about what to do with your Lenten fast. I never fast when the bridegroom is present. Um, so, uh, you know, I think... What is the history of that? I used to know the history of that. Um, but anyway, there we have it. Okay. So you... Okay, cool. Um, I think that we don't I fast don't on fast Sundays. On Sundays. I, think, I... I don't fast from the bridegroom person. And I think that that has long history in the tradition of the church and the fathers. It seems like the sort of thing that I have read fathers yeah. of the church saying. One of the fast. reasons why, just, you know, a little free free advice for, for listeners. This is why I tend to do Saturday evening vigil masses. <laughs> Sunday starts early in my That's house. Why. That's why. No, it's not why. But actually, for complicated eschatological reasons, but I actually think it's more important because obviously if you go to the Genesis narrative and in all Semitic theological yes. philosophical traditions, um, we don't yes. go from day to night because we are not a sort of apocalyptic Ragnarokian Norse people who believe the world is spinning towards mm-hmm. inevitable destruction. We are awaiting the dawn. So actually in the Genesis narrative, it's evening came, morning came, the first day that we proceed from darkness into light, not the reverse, and so that is why the day always. Be- the people of darkness have seen a great light. You're not American. You don't know that well, song. There's a song that's the people that walked in darkness. It's, it's Isaiah, isn't it? Well, that is indeed the song. But um, if you don't know the Broadway version, I'm teaching it to you. Oh, let us build the city of God. Yeah, yeah. What if? Imagine if we got sued for copyright restrictions. I don't know. Right that now. sounds horrible. May our tears be turned into this dancing. Sounds terrible. Everybody knows that song. Uh, no, no. So okay. no. Um, JD, pancakes on Shrove Tuesday. Really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I mean, I'm not opposed. I, I mean, if I'm, it's just if I'm going to if I'm going to self consciously gorge, I'm not, not wasting the space on pancakes. I mean, it's a. I like pancakes. I like pancakes too. It's just I like other stuff more. Well, I didn't say exclusively pancakes, but you know the reason you're for supposed that to is clean out the has to, the thing of the stuff that you can't use during yeah. the Great Lent. It's 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 sort of irrelevant to Latins and contemporary Lent when we don't really sort of go vegan, as it were. But um, uh, yeah, we don't it. do the Veliki Pist, I think. It's our Ukrainian brethren would call it the Great the Great Fast. Yeah, I know a religious... Inst- well, I know a couple of religious institutes to do, but... You, no credit here. for lear- trying to learn the Ukrainian for Great Fast in advance. Well done, Ed, well done. Uh, what about KFC fish fries, JD? Uh, sorry. <clears throat> Knights of Columbus fish fries or KFC fish sandwich? Knights of Columbus. From Kentucky Fried. Oh. I've I, never um, been to a okay, Kentucky so Fried I, Chicken in my entire life. I would. I have never eaten it. I will never eat it. I cannot imagine why people do that to themselves. I. You're a Popeye's man, are you? I've never been to a Popeye's either. What would be the... I guess the, I guess the equivalent for you would be like a, a chipper... A, chi- a takeaway. Oh, I'm just going down to the takeaway for a chipper, mom. What is I'll a chipper? And if I'm, oi, it's a place where you have fish and chips. Oi, mom, going down to the chipper. Are you trying to say chippy? Yeah, the chippy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oi, going to the chippy. 
I need, I need a cup, I need five quid. Are you under the impression I was raised by a Burmese fishwife? I, what is going on here? <laughs> no, that's not a, ba I mean, tell me that's a, a basic summation of sort of your, you know, life experience. Uh, sure, that is, that's exactly what it's like. Um, but <laughs> my, Knights of Columbus fish fries, JD. Yes or no? Oh, it sounds right proper to me. Um, I used to um, live in Nebraska, as you might know, and Nebraska is a place with more sophisticated um, fish fry culture than any other place in which I have ever lived or But Nebraska been. is landlocked. The fish fries. Where uh, they is. get so the they fish? Don't, I don't know where they get the fish, but let's be honest, we live in a globalized economy now. That's less of a concern than... than we have supply chain problems right now. I don't know if you've noticed. Well, we do, but they're probably... I mean, there are refrigerated containers and all that. So... Uh, um, but the, the thing about them is they also have phenomenal macaroni and cheese often. And most of them, I, I mean, if you go to a fish fry and it doesn't have beer, you're like, what am I even here for? So um, parish fish fries in the great state of Nebraska are, are very excellent. Although I don't actually know if they're administered by the, um, the Knights of, uh, of Crystal Ball or not. Okay. Yes. All right. Uh, hair shirts. I, I, where, okay, where we're going to stop this sure, nonsense yeah. right now because I'll be honest, it wasn't funny the first time, but we're into the fourth no, round now. That's where you're wrong. See, it's not meant to be funny the first time. It's meant to get funny with repetition. That's Nothing gets thinking. funny with repetition. <laughs> that's not true. You're always quoting to me these kind of movies that you like with Peter Sellers or whatever. Um, or you're always about about once a week. Ed's like, oh, you've, there's this one stand-up comedian that Ed likes from the '70s, I think, who's English. Um, and uh, or maybe 80s and, and probably once a week Ed sends me the same YouTube of the guy and it's fine but what's funny is the repetition of you continuing what to is, introduce me to what this is, which comedian is this? Uh, I can't remember it doesn't matter he was on a show called um, I don't know Queen Elizabeth's Laugh-In or something I, I, I don't know the name of the show but um, it's a it's kind of variety show a sketch comedy hour and he does a bit that's not appropriate for radio or for us to even talk about really and you send it to me constantly or you're always you're often sending to me Monty Python bits. I've like, yes, never sent you a Monty Python What's bit. I've funny never. Is your never in my entire life have I sent someone a Monty Python bit. That's simply not true. I'm trying to think. Hair shirts. I mean, for other. I mean, I'm. I don't know. That, I'm not. As a, a Lenten pendant. Hair shirts. In principle, yes. No, I, it's not the, is, I'm not I don't asking you to make a ruling of the, in principle. Just for you. Yeah. For me, probably ought, but I wouldn't know where to get one or. That's a point. I've never considered that. How do you source a good hair shirt? Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I would not mind for the rest of Lent. If you are an Etsy artisan of hair shirts, um, we will give you an extraordinary discount on podcast sponsorship for the remainder of Lent. <laughs> if you contact us and invite us to uh, to read advertisements about your hair, your Etsy hair shop, artisan hair shop business, we'll give you one heck of a discount. I promise you that. Uh, just because I think people ought to know where to get a good hair shirt. Right, for sure. So yes, but I think I think Francis de Sales sort of talks about, um, you know, being sure not to take on penances that exceed sort of your experience in the penitential life, and sort of I think I'm more at the pebble in the shoe. Kind That's of fair. Level than I've often wondered if you could just like wear an Irish woolen sweater without a t-shirt. Like would that would that get I mean, you there? Would, yeah. Would it be sort of penitent? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. Um, yeah. Daylight saving. I ain't got nothing on <sighs> under it. Daylight savings time? Uh, well, it happens every land. Spring forward vomit. Uh, which is that the one? Spring forward. Yeah, that's the one that sucks. Um, although they both suck, honestly. You're going to discover that this year with a child that 
Um, it takes a child a long time to get you. I mean, you wouldn't think it would take a child that much time to get used to it because they never know what time it is anyway, but it will take a child a, quite a while to get used to the change of things. So um, I, I'll say Oh, no. I hadn't even considered the effect on the... I hate daylight. Yes. Spoiler alert. This is going to be my newsletter. Mark. I hate yes. daylight savings time. I absolutely hate it. It is one yes, of the stupidest yes, yes. things we have ever... Nothing so sums up the hubris of man that the idea that... Oh well, we you know it's the the you know the natural rhythms of daylight and the sun are you know not in tune with how I'm living my daily schedule. So the answer is not get up an hour earlier or stay up an hour later. It's <coughs> let's change the clocks. I mean, it is. We're gonna get a lot of notifications from people who are farmers and. This is going to be a next week. We're going to be like, now we need to talk a no, little bit about our discussion. Not, of no, on this, savings. I yield to no one. There will be no apologies. Daylight savings time is stupid. If you are worried that the sun is setting too early in the day, get up an hour earlier. And if you are a politician, if you're one of those crackpot lunatic politicians who makes the whole thing about abolishing daylight savings time your shtick, but you don't actually want to abolish daylight savings time, what you actually want to abolish is real time because you want to make summertime the permanent time then I don't even know what to tell you. You basically would like to have our entire concept of time unmoored from reality. Just why not do something useful? Isn't our entire concept of time a relatively arbitrary measuring of reality? It's anyway? not. I mean, we could have a different, we could have a base 10 time system, uh, right? I mean, we could have a base 10 time system. There's nothing sort of essentially true about, now days, days are biblical, but there's nothing sort of essentially true about our calculation of what constitutes an hour or even a minute or something like that, right? No, I mean, but my point is that we have the, the, we could have the some fixed sort of concept of time and daylight as we measure it is noon when the sun is directly overhead. And the idea of Greenwich Mean Time and the entire world time zone premise is that, you know, we have a... I mean, we, we all we know how yes. we get it. And so if we we're saying, well, we're, we're just going to say we want the clocks to be permanently an hour forward from that. It's like we're divorcing what little gra what little tethering to reality we still have. We say, well, no, new no longer makes any difference. We're just going to... But why not just say, like, you know what? For part of the year, the school day should shift and should start an hour earlier or... No, or later. later. But later, I'm saying in line with whatever the effect is people would like. That, you know, instead of saying we need to change time, why don't we just once say, well, why don't we change our habit? Who cares? It's arbitrary. It's, it's arbitrary. not arbitrary. Time is not arbitrary. It's totally arbitrary. Time matters, J.D. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this might be the most English thing about you now. <sighs> You're effectively Mr. Banks, and I never I knew do, it. I do. <sighs> I, do you not get existential? Do you not freak out a little bit when you think about time? By. I do, but for different reasons than you. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, fine. <laughs> Fajnik, JD. Fajnik. Yes or no? Would you use it in a sentence? Uh, sure. In Croatia, it is traditional on Ash Wednesday to burn life-sized human wooden dolls which represent a person's bad or mischievous actions over yes. the previous year. Yes. 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 You burn yourself an EVG on Ash Wednesday. Can you put that in a... Uh, we're recording this on Thursday, and uh, Ed is going to put a YouTube of Fejnik in um, in his uh, newsletter I, tomorrow. I will try and do that. I will see if I can find some. How do you spell that? Uh, F-A-S-N-I-K, but the S has got the little thingy. Not in not in YouTube, it doesn't. Okay, I got you one. Oh gosh, this is terrible. Actually. <laughs> um, well, maybe. You can do that. But still, I, I'm going to say yes. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, <laughs> I told you yeah. they're very lifelike, aren't they? Oh, sweet goodness. But some of them are. <coughs> wow. Okay. Uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> I'd like to see it. Sure. Yes. What else? What's next? Next. Uh, when I say what's next, it means I'm ready to move right, on to the McDonald's next McDonald's fish sandwiches, and there's only one correct answer. No. No. Exactly. This is garbage. Don't do that to yourselves, people. There are there are other penances that you could do. I don't like fish. Well, I mean, it's fine as a salad. Yeah, fish. smoked salmon is basically a salad course. I don't care for I don't care for salmon. Really? Hmm. Yeah. It's the bane of my. You know what? This is a real. I remember this is one of the first times. Um, you came to Washington after we knew each other, and you were staying at my house. You made me some salmon. I pushed you around did, my plate. And, but it was you came on Ash Wednesday was the thing. I was like, well. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, I, I, well, I felt trapped because you'd made it clear you don't like fish. But on the other hand, I thought, well, if I serve the guy a steak on Ash Wednesday, he's going to think I'm a pagan. And oh, I would have taken some cereal or an omelet or something like that. <coughs> Boy, we are sick. You know, there's a lot of it going around. Um, I think that I think we'll. I mean, it was very nice of you to make the salmon. Thank you for making the salmon. I'm sorry that you caught me pushing around on my plate. I try to be more discreet than that. I hope I tuck some in the napkin or put it down for the dog. You don't have a dog. That's probably how you discovered. It, is I put it down for the dog, yeah. and then there wasn't. What about beaver, there. JD? You can't eat beaver. Um, <laughs> you can't eat beaver for Lent. I have always wanted to eat the tail of a beaver, which you can order. But I never have ordered it. I don't know what's standing in my way, to be perfectly honest. But you can't eat beaver during Lent in, in I don't know about all places, but certainly in French Canada. Is actually whatnot. eating beaver tail a real thing? I thought beaver tail was um, was a kind of baked good. I thought that it was bread or pastry might cut be that. into it might be that. the it might pattern. Be that. Like in actual, um, think about think about what's happening inside a, inside the tail of a beaver. You have effectively. I'm trying to. I thought um, it would be all cartilage. Uh, a honeycomb of cartilage and muscular tissue in between which you have what? Fat? Ooh. Fat. Now, um, yeah, okay. right? Uh -huh. put, that, put that on a grill, sear that sucker up, and then roast it for a while. I mean, what don't you want to do with that? Oh, I don't know if I, I mean, if it's, the it, weird, so this sounds like you've got to really slow cook it, but I'm interested now. I'm going to go look into, yeah. I'm going to look into eating beaver tail. That's what I'm saying, sear it and yeah, then slow I'm gonna, roast it. I will look into eating beaver tail. I, I may see... Well, I just I don't want you to beat me to it because it's been a goal of mine for so long. So I I'm, like I I'm asking around. I'm, if I can get beaver tail, I'm having beaver tail. Well, you can have it during Lent in French Canada or something like that. Okay, that's all I got. Okay, great. Okay, well that was awesome. And uh, <laughs> okay, let's see. To buy a beaver tail at exoticmeatmarket.com cost you. 50 bucks. These people say you should marinate it for 48 hours and cook it in a crock pot. Ah, I think uh, I don't do, do crock it. pot. Dutch oven, sure. Right. No, I, yeah, I, I tend to agree, but really, I'd like to get a nice sear on it. Um, that you have to, apparently, you have to, uh, the outside is leathery. It looks to me, as I just kind of look around here, like people might skin one side of it. Huh. Anyway. Oh, these ones are on sale for dogs? Forget that. Yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD. Production. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD. You usually say an Ed and JD mutual. No, I've never said that. Oh, you know what? I say an Ed and JD joint um, in an homage to Spike Lee himself. Uh, the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD. No? 
I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm gone now. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, far less curmudgeonly than he was when he got here, Ed. Love that daylight savings time, Condon. And we'll be back next week to let you know how the beaver tail was. If I, It probably takes 70 days to ship, but we're going to see what we can do.